Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a try. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He is a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll visit with Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josepha Savaz, and endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture, Professor Larry Bell, also uh, an author as well. He's written several books. Uh, you know what? I don't have his uh, latest book right here in front of me. So, but I've read it, and it's quite good. It's what makes humans being uh, special. Some, something to that effect. Any event, we'll have a uh, Professor Bell on as well. It is June the second, and on this day in 1935, Babe Ruth, one of the greatest players in the history of baseball, ended his major league career after 22 seasons, 10 World Series, and 714 home runs. The following year, Ruth, a larger-than-life figure whose name became synonymous with baseball, was one of the five players inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame. And incredibly, actually, on September the, uh, June the 2nd, the season wasn't over. He just said, that's it. I'm not playing anymore. <laughs> he did it his way, didn't he? George Herman Ruth was born February the 6th, 1895, in a poor family in Baltimore. As a child, he spent, uh, sent to uh, St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. I read at one point it was a reform school. Anyhow, a school run by Roman Catholic brothers who, where he learned to play baseball and was a standout athlete. At 19, Ruth was signed by the Baltimore Orioles, then a Boston, Boston Red Sox minor league team. Ruth's fellow teammates and media began referring to him as the team owner Jack Dunn's newest babe, a nickname that stuck. Ruth would later acquire other nicknames, including the Sultan of Swat and the Bambino. Uh, Ruth made his Major League debut as a left-handed pitcher with the Red Sox in July 1914 and pitched 89 winning games for the team before 1920 when he was traded to the New York Yankees. After Ruth left Boston in what became known as the Curse of the Bambino, the Red Sox didn't win another World Series until 2004. In New York, Ruth's primary position changed to outfielder and he led the Yankees to seven American League pennants and four World Series victories. Ruth was a huge star in New York and attracted so many fans that the team was able to open a new stadium in 1923, Yankee Stadium, dubbed the house that Ruth built. Southpaw Slugger's final season in 1935 with the Boston Braves. He had joined the uh, Braves with the hope that he'd become the team's manager the next season. However, this dream never came to pass for a disappointed Ruth who had a reputation for excessive drinking, gambling, and womanizing. Many of the records Ruth set remained in place for decades. His career home run record stood until 1974 when it was broken by Hammerin' Hank Aaron. What a great guy he was. Ruth's record of 60 home runs in a single season, 1927, of 154 games wasn't bested until 1961 when Roger Maris knocked out 61 home runs in an extended season of 162 games. Man, extra, uh, those extra eight games made a difference. The Sultan of Swat's career slugging percentage of 690 remains the highest in Major League history. 
Ruth, uh, Ruth died of throat cancer at age 53 on August the 16th, 1948, in New York City. His body lay in uh, state at Yankee Stadium for two days and when visited with over 100,000 fans. The salt in the spot. The great Babe Ruth. Baseball's a hard game. And to think that we have one guy now that can pitch and as well as be a, a slugger. Uh, Japanese in <clears throat> uh, the, the Los Angeles Angels. He is fantastic as well. But Ruth was really special. Well, on a press conference Tuesday morning, Friday, Governor, uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a law, a bill that bans biological males from competing in biological female sports. We believe in the state of Florida protecting the fairness and integrity of women's athletes. Uh, athletics, said DeSantis. DeSantis said the women's sports provides our young girls with opportunities that, re- that teach them lessons that last a lifetime, adding that the competing in sports has provided many girls the opportunity to pursue higher education. We believe it's very important that the integrity of these competitions are preserved, that these opportunities are protected, said DeSantis. The bill defines a student's biological sex based on the student's official birth certificate at the time of birth, and as part of the bill we, we signed today, we're not going to make sh- we're going to make sure that women have the opportunities for scholarships and competition at the highest level. We're also putting in a statute ways to actually vindicate the rights of any woman athletes who may be discriminated against. He went on to outline who can pursue what call- what are called civil remedies in association with the bill. Pretty special. We really appreciate <clears throat> what uh, Governor DeSantis has done. He invited. Selena Soleil, who was a Connecticut high school track runner who lost opportunity to run in the New England Regional Championship because of biological males running in her division. She said, I love my sport. I spent countless hours training to shave fractions of a second off my time so I could be the best because I, uh, I raced to win, she said. But my chances of being first, of being the best, were shattered. And of course, it's because of these biological males who came in and uh, won 15 women's championships and, and titles and set 17 individual meet records uh, in the course of just a few years because males were able to compete as women. She said it was demoralizing to be sidelined in her own sport, taking, talking about how she and other girls in the state were denied countless opportunities because of just these two athletes. Uh, let me just say very clearly in Florida, we're going to do what's right. We're going, uh, and we uh, will, and up to corporations, they're not going to dictate the policies in this state. And he's talking about the NCAA. DeSantis also announced that he would be signing a separate bill on the same day that would allow students to get compensation for the use of their names and likeness effective July 1st, 2021. Again, Governor DeSantis making another terrific decision. Now, Agriculture Commissioner Nikki Freed filed paperwork to put herself on the ballot for governor in 2022. Well, she's going to have to have a face-off, a primary with Charlie Crist, of course, because he's also, Chain Gang, Chain Gang Charlie has also put his name in the hat for uh, the Democrat candidate for governor. Commissioner Freed's non-announcement fell on deaf ears and was overshadowed by DeSantis' signing of the transgender bill in Jacksonville. Reed filed the paperwork, but has not announced her actions on Twitter or any other social media outlet, which is kind of weird because considering everything that she's done in the months leading up to this, the filing that she's pushed on social media platforms. She recently told the Floridian that she would be announcing in the same public way Charlie Crist announced his gubernatorial campaign, suggesting that uh, her say in the sun would be done online. 
well, nothing been announced officially by her yet, but she's filed the paperwork. Don't think Charlie or uh, Nikki have a good chance against Governor DeSantis. President uh, Joe Biden asserted Tuesday that terrorism from white supremacy was the most lethal threat facing the United States. I'm not kidding, he really said that. Biden spoke about the threat of white supremacy during a speech in Tulsa marking the 100th anniversary of the 1921 race massacre in Greenwood, that neighborhood in Tulsa. You may, we talked about that yesterday. According to the intelligence community, terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland today, Biden said. Not ISIS, not al-Qaeda, white supremacists, he said. Really underscoring what he said. Biden was likely referring to a statement from acting U.S. Homeland Security uh, Secretary Chad Wolf, who told members of Congress that white supremacy was the most persistent and lethal threat to the United States on September 2020. In October 2020, uh, Department of Homeland Security released a report showing that white supremacist extremism accounted for more fatal attacks than any other domestic violent extremist group since 2018. Biden revisited the massacre of the black community in Tulsa to show the long history of white supremacists in the country, comparing it to the clash between the post-protesters uh, in Charlottesville. He keeps on bringing that up, doesn't he? So what happened in Greenland was an act of hate and domestic terrorism with a th uh, through line that exits today, he said, just close your eyes and remember what you saw in Charlottesville four years ago on television. President Joe Biden argued that black entrepreneurs needed more assistance from the federal government because many did not have accountants or lawyers. I'm not kidding. He really said that. <laughs> so, the data shows young black entrepreneurs are just as capable of succeeding given the chances white entrepreneurs are, but they don't have lawyers, they don't have accountants, but they have great ideas, Biden said. I'm not kidding. He really said that. He also announced that the federal government would uh, use more of its purchasing power to support disadvantaged businesses, including those owned by black and brown Americans. He said, I had the authority to do that. Joe Biden. Plugs. A massive uh, National Pulse reader poll has revealed that an overwhelming majority of first America First base wanted a return to the White House for President Donald Trump in 2024 while the MAGA faithful appear to have completely uh, out of love with former Vice President Mike Pence, asked, who is your preferred Republican for 2024? A whopping 67% chose President Donald Trump. In second place is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 17%. And third, just 3% is, is former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So uh, I guess uh, most Americans, or Republicans, are not in favor of Mike Pence. Uh, certainly in favor of uh, President Donald Trump. More than 11 million uh, Americans are behind their rent and may could and could be pushed from their homes when the national eviction ban expires on June the 1st. 11 million Americans. That's That expires in June, I think at the end of June, June 30th. So uh, that's something we're going to watch. 11 million Americans could be evicted from their homes. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Uh, visit lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy. Bob is the chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. The website is gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank. headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Cato.org, terrific organization. I hope you check out the website. So, Bob, uh, for these past several weeks, we've been talking about the Second Amendment and gun control proposals, one of which is how about improving uh, uh, reporting on prospective gun buyers who are mentally ill? That's been bantered about. What are your thoughts? Well, federal regulations currently prohibit uh, transferring a firearm to anybody who's adjudicated as a mental defective which means that a court determines he's a danger to himself or others, Mm. or that he lacks the uh, capacity to manage his own affairs. So the only other banned buyers are those who are actually committed to a mental institution by court order. So what we exclude from all of that 
is persons who commit themselves voluntarily and persons who are committed just for observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obama wanted to include those folks um, who are ordered to get outpatient treatment, and frankly, that seemed like a reasonable approach to me as long as there's a process to restore gun rights when the person is no longer deemed to be a uh, public safety risk. But the bigger problem here is that this database called the NICS database, mm. National Instant Check System, uh, is that many states don't provide mental health data to the system. And the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government can't compel <clears throat> the states to comply. Mm. Now, maybe that's going to change with these various uh, mass shootings, but so far, cooperation has not been universal. Now, I, I think a more effective solution is earlier detection and treatment of mental illness. Um, there is this obvious point that when you scrutinize medical records, it raises serious civil liberties issues, mm-hmm. uh, and we have to worry about violating privacy rights. You know, we have these red flag laws uh, in many states say that police or family can identify people likely to be a danger to themselves or others. And then the courts can strip those folks of gun rights temporarily. Yeah. All good and well as long as due process is uh, followed and there's a procedure for remedying the situation when there's no longer a risk. Yeah, of course, mental illness is a bigger issue than gun control. I mean, it's uh, you read about the things that happen and there's evidence and signs that, the, that people were struggling mentally and emotionally. So a uh, uh, whole separate problem. We need to do more about that. Absolutely. So uh, the NRA suggests armed guards or even armed teachers at schools. What do you think? Well, these gun-free school zones have been a magnet, you know, for the <clears throat> mentally unbalanced. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, almost 30% of public schools already employ uh, security officers who carry firearms. So I don't think it's a bad idea at all. I mean, we have armed guards in banks yeah. and airports and airplanes and power plants and courts and stadiums and government buildings, so there's no reason uh, why armed persons can't be at all public schools, uh, and some of those armed people might be uh, teachers. You wouldn't require a teacher to do it, yeah. and they'd have to undergo training, but the ones who volunteered and given the extensive background screening, psychological testing, and uh, practical training uh, may be equivalent to what sky marshals uh, now get, and the teachers wouldn't actually carry the firearms, but the firearms would be accessible uh, in some safe storage uh, area. Yeah. And if the teacher's well-trained, and some of these folks already have military experience, I think that would materially lower the cost of uh, protecting our, our students. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so as well. It's interesting. I just I flash back to the Virginia Tech shootings that, where it's a gun-free zone. If just one of those teachers perhaps had had a, a gun to stop this uh, person, it would have been... Really helpful. So um, what about a requirement for registration of all firearms, just like we do for cars? Well, there's no case I know about where registration resulted in an arrest. Uh, the criminals don't register. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you possess a gun illegally, you can't even be required uh, to register. The Supreme Court said that that's self-incrimination. So only law-abiding citizens register. Mm -hmm. And when this is compared, for example, to automobile registration, bear in mind that automobile registration is state by state, not federal. Mm -hmm. And there's no suggestion that anybody plans to make autos 
illegal, contrary to guns. And there's no express right of the people to drive cars, uh, which shall not be infringed. Uh, and, the, you know, the Brady Center, the, the co-founder, said the first problem is to slow down the number of handguns being sold. The second problem is to get handguns registered. And the final problem is to make possession totally illegal. So you can see the path that the registration advocates are actually following. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Well, thanks for your clarification on that. If you could implement one gun control proposal that might attract support, what would it be? I think the best of all options that hasn't gotten a lot of public attention, even though it would radically reduce gun violence, is to legalize drugs. You know, there are one and a half million drug arrests each year, and more drug inmates than fall violent crimes combined, about 50% of the federal prison uh, population. And because these drugs are illegal, uh, the participants in the drug trade, they can't go to court to settle their disputes, so the disputes are resolved by force on the streets uh, with guns. Uh, criminals and terrorists are earning about $40 billion a year in the drug trade. The DEA has thousands of agents and support staff who could be available to fight uh, crime or, or terrorism. Uh, the courts are clogged. The jails are overcrowded. Uh, the police are overburdened. The public defenders are overworked. Uh, we have racial discrimination that's endemic. Um, so it's a, it's a, you know, seems to be a no-brainer, despite our drug laws. Cocaine and heroin supplies are up. Yeah. A lot of uh, high school seniors say they can get marijuana wherever they want, even though it's federally prohibited. And, and yet addiction should be treated like, like alcoholism. It's a medical health problem. We treat people. We don't incarcerate them yeah. if they're alcoholics. And like alcohol, it should be legal to sell drugs to adults, but not to minors. Yeah. And unlike tobacco, which reportedly kills about 400,000 people a year. Um, and it's legal. Uh, marijuana, for example, doesn't kill anybody that I'm aware of. So interesting, Bob. It's just so ironic to me that actually uh, the federal government's in uh, partnership with the cartels running drugs into the United States. So it's just pretty incredible, though. I, just to clarify, though, did you say 50% of all incarcerations are due to uh, drug? Uh, federal. Federal prison population. Wow, that is just amazing. I read someplace, I don't know if it's still true, that uh, we have uh, 25% of the incarcerated population in the world here in the United States, here in the freest country in the world, if you can imagine. Yeah, that. and a lot of that is uh, drug-related. Yeah, so. so interesting. Bob Levy, again, the chairman of the Cato Institute. I strongly encourage you to visit the website, cato.org, C-A-T-O dot org. But I always appreciate uh, talking to you about these issues that are not politically charged. They are politically charged, but not in a political way. Just genuinely appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Andrew is a professor He's also uh, author of Josephus of Oz, a terrific read, off-topic for today's discussion. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and you can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Good morning on this beautiful spring day, Bob. Isn't it a wonderful day? It is indeed. Yes, it is. So, Andy, uh, by the way, I want to compliment you on your latest column. I've forgotten the name of it, but it's about personal re- taking personal responsibility. I just really enjoyed it. In fact, I've posted it on my website. Uh, that was the uh, the column on We the Citizens, the talking of citizenship, and I'm going to refer to that uh, later on in our discussion. Bob. That's great. Okay, so um, yesterday, Memorial Day, any thoughts? Well, um Yes, I, I have many thoughts about it. Uh, I guess the uh, the one that I'd like to really focus on is built around the quotation from uh, from Abraham Lincoln when he said that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause, that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. And I ask the question at this point, uh, have we in fact done that? Have we have we ensured that the sacrifices they they made are are, are still being defended by by current America? And I uh, I certainly believe there are problems in that area. And uh, I think the Memorial Day uh, discussions and uh, my friends and myself we decided that it, no one should say Happy Memorial Day, but we've started to use the phrase Grateful Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we have to look at these sacrifices. A million warriors have 
have given the the ultimate sacrifice. And uh, right now, I, I think perhaps the case can be made, and I'm not going to make it dramatically, but perhaps many of those uh, those fine warriors did die in vain at this point, Bob. Yeah, sad thought. Uh, I mean, you know, watch what's happening to the military right now with regard to uh, becoming woke. <laughs> it's uh, just uh, very, very uh, upsetting, quite frankly. Well, well, it is. And again, if we project into the future, you know, the uh, the, the strength of an army that's built on wokeness and the, the implications, will this army uh, defend what they should be defending? The only thing they're sworn to defend, which is the Constitution of the United States. Uh, do they have that kind of commitment? I think with uh, Lloyd Austin as Secretary of Defense, I think the answer has to be no at this point. So I, I am concerned about the military. It's uh, typically been our our source of greatest pride and where we turn to for models of, of how to uh, create a, a healthy patriotic organization. And uh, But now that's, that's somewhat disappearing. It's not gone yet, of course, but uh, I, I think it's under severe threat, perhaps more so than uh, been any point in our history, Bob. You know, I'd like to uh, make a recommendation of this uh, Tucker Carlson Today show that's being streamed. You can uh, subscribe to it. I think you can get the first month free. But irrespective, there's been some great shows and the, uh, yesterday's was on is his name lomar the guy that uh was the, the had a leader in the space force and he was relieved of his command and uh he basically saying is we're headed down the wrong path with all this wokeness and uh, uh the the racism accusations and so forth he's it's well worth watching i encourage our listeners to uh, to take a look at it well, if you remember, last week we talked a lot about uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Lohmeyer, uh, a remarkably uh, courageous uh, man who has put his career uh, in, in jeopardy. Uh, he hasn't lost his rank or his, uh, his ability to be in the service, but he's been removed from, from his command position in the Space Force. Uh, and again, he is uh, very articulate, uh, very, very well-versed in the implications of freedom. And, you know, um, uh, he is the, I guess, the one single source at this moment uh, that gives me hope that the yep. military has something within it uh, that is still what the original military of the of America was, Bob. Well, that's right, and, and I guess the point of my bringing this up is that he wants to start a dialogue. He wants he wants people to understand and and discuss this, and to to put a check on: Are we going on that down the right path? He has his point of view, certainly well informed. And uh, again, I just encourage our listeners to go to Tucker Carlson today and watch. Uh, I guess his name is Commander uh, Lohmeyer, uh, and his interview with Tucker Carlson is just fantastic. L Lieutenant Colonel Lohmeyer, Matthew Lohmeyer, yeah. just, uh, again, once again, a, a fine officer and a fine gentleman. So uh, well worth watching, and um, I think it's, uh, it's encouraging to see men being produced like that still in America. So uh, he's a source of optimism for me, Bob. Uh, uh, me as well. Thank you, Andy. So uh, right now... What are your thoughts on what's happening in the world, the growing problems with uh, China and the Black Lives Matter? Well, I, I have something else that I mentioned off, off air to you that I'd like to. I'd like to give a plug to a, a book by a uh, local friend of mine, Bella Altura. Uh, she published a book several years ago, actually, called Golden America. Now, Bella Altura and her husband, Bert, uh, were two of the most renowned, if not the most renowned scientists in the world, in terms of studying the implications of magnesium as it affected muscle tissue, particularly muscles, uh, the heart muscle. 
you know, world-renowned, that traveled the world giving seminars. And she published this book, Golden America, which details her family's uh, staying one step ahead of the Nazis. And uh, as the Nazis came to power, they moved eight or nine times throughout Europe. Uh, finally, she made it to America. The book uh, describes her uh, her. Uh, struggles to uh, get her education, to get her PhD, to establish the laboratory with her husband. It's just a, it's a great look at what scientists in this specific case, two scientists working together were able to accomplish uh, in, in the face of opposition and how much effort they had to put in. Sometimes I, I think we, we don't understand the world that the science, a true scientists actually have to work in. Uh, but Bella lays this out beautifully. And I think it's a book uh, well worth reading for your for your listeners, Bob. Uh, Golden America is the name of the book. Golden America. Okay, great. So uh, back to Chi and China and Black Lives Matter. Well, uh, China's, uh, you know, I'm going to be optimistic here. That, again, you know, you and I, that, that's our point of, uh, of disconnect sometimes. But uh, China has some problems. Uh, first of all, obviously, the uh, the fairly common identification that the uh, Wuhan flu escaped from the Wuhan virology, virology laboratories, that's been uh, pretty much well accepted. Uh, that's creating uh, pressures on China from the international community. Uh, Europe has suspended their investment pact with China uh, for many reasons, but including the Wuhan lab. Um, the one-child policy that uh, under Deng Xiaoping uh, is now coming back to haunt them because they're not producing enough younger people to support the retiring population uh, of China. Um, uh, uh, Australia and New Zealand have, en have entered into a coalition against China. Many of the Asian nations are pushing back uh, against China for their uh, for their uh, confiscation, let's call it, of the South China Sea. So uh, Xi is having a, a lot of problems right now. i I'm not rooting against China necessarily, but I am pointing out uh, that China is going through some struggles with the international community, uh, with the Asian community, and internally uh, that are, are a serious uh, threat, I would say, uh, to their economic movement forward and to the stability uh, of, the, of the communist regime in China. So, uh, yes, I do regard that as good news. Anything that weakens a militaristic and uh, aggressive China, I think, is good news for the world community, Bob. Yeah, my perspective is the uh, Chinese Communist Party is a transnational uh, criminal enterprise. It's not necessarily related to the Chinese people. The Chinese people are ruled by them with an iron fist, but I don't think they necessarily are, are, are representative of the Chinese people. They are basically thieves. I mean, they're, they're criminals, and uh, their behavior is just unacceptable on the world stage. Well, I, I certainly tend to agree with you. I've had in my past teaching graduate courses, I've had many Chinese students. As a matter of fact, I was just looking at a letter I received from one after the Tiananmen Square um, uh, debacle, and he wrote me and he, he, he thanked me for giving him, in this specific case, uh, the courage to push back for democracy in China. So uh, that's one of my proudest moments. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that uh, China's having problems and... Um, uh, again, I don't want uh, a nation of a billion and a half people to have major problems because that's too much humanity being put at risk. Uh, but on the other hand, I think China needs to be taken down a peg and lose their uh, their aggressiveness in many areas. We could add into that the theft of intellectual property, which is a major issue as, uh, as the world economically goes forward, Bob. Uh, great point. So yesterday was the uh, uh, anniversary 
of the uh, Green, I think it's called Greenwall or Greenwood uh, uh, Massacre of black people in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And uh, the President of the United States basically said that uh, the biggest problem we have in the United States today is white supremacists. It's bigger than, uh, than any other threat that we have. I just can't believe that he actually said that. Well, this is a, a common viewpoint across the political left. I mean, this is Biden verbalizing it, but this is, again, being verbalized also by uh, the Democrat leaders in Congress and um, their politicians and, and so forth. So this is a, a constant uh, harping that they're going through. It's also the, uh, the intent of establishing a... Uh, uh, a January 6th commission. I, I think any reasonably minded person knows that that commission would not be dedicated to the truth, but dedicated to, in fact, just um, probably dumping more on, on, on President Trump, uh, ex-President Trump, obviously, uh, and uh, to uh, further um, diminish mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the Republican Party and to make a stronger point, uh, as they will, I know, uh, in terms of white supremacists and the problems you pointed out, Bob. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that. That's a, a serious issue. Um, if we move back into the uh, the Tulsa race riots, now I have an earlier uh, exposure to that. About 20 years ago, I was friendly with the uh, head of the firm that was marketing uh, the the first real documentary revealing the the specifics of the Tulsa race riots and. Uh, I watched this documentary. The, the event was absolutely horrific in, in, in Tulsa. And, uh, there's no way, uh, no other way to describe it. There were dozens murdered. Uh, most of the uh, black economic community in Tulsa, which was one of the strongest focus points of, of black economic development, was burnt to the ground. So uh, let's, uh, we can make no bones about that. This was a horrific racist event of uh, by, by any measurement, Bob. Right. But let me make the point today that when the left brings up Tulsa and the 1921 race riots, I don't think they really are focused on that. That's not their concern. They try to leverage these horrific uh, historical events into ways of, of describing current America. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, the problem is not to focus on the Tulsa race riots and to uh, memorialize them at their 100-year anniversary. But what the Democrats is doing is not that. What they are doing is saying, yes, that riot occurred in 1921, but we are still the same America in 2021. And that's what they do with all historical events. They want to make every every negative piece of history a current piece of American history. And, and that is a problem because that is no longer what America is, Bob. Yeah, it's such an interesting observation. Thanks for that clarification. So uh, what about Black Lives Matter and the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, Black Lives Matter is having some problems. They, they've had several of their local leaders uh, drop out of the movement. They've become disenchanted, uh, much of it because of the, the founder, Patrice Kalouris, who uh, has somehow uh, found the need to own four major homes using BLM funds. Uh, in Europe, there have been uh, multiple staged events that have been identified uh, um, by, by BLM leaders, money has been shifted from the coffers of BLM to, uh, to outside people with no identification as to the purpose of that shifting of money. So there seems to be at least a crack in this, uh, this impenetrable um, uh, barrier between uh, America and the truth of BLM. So uh, those things are, are, are 
sources of optimism for me that uh, even the media, if we look at the the media's identification of the Wuhan lab, at least they're willing at this point to suggest that, yes, it probably came from the Wuhan lab. They're also willing to re reveal the stories about Patrice Kalouris and some of the uh, the activities of BLM uh, that are negative in, in terms of defining just exactly what BLM is. So uh, those are sources of, uh, of, of optimism for me. I could add to that there's a growing amount of pushback against the critical race theory. Um, which, again, again, is a source of optimism. It's not an overwhelming pushback. Uh, we still have, uh, the last number I heard was about 4,500 American public schools still have a critical race theory integrated into their, uh, into their curriculum. And, of course, we can add to that the corporations and uh, the military, as we were alluding to before. But there is a growing pushback. So my optimism is the media seems to be the the um, losing its its control of the stories that they're revealing. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the way to define it, but at least these stories are coming out. Uh, CRT is being diminished. Uh, BLM is being diminished. Uh, I would also add to it uh, the Supreme Court ruling recently that uh, asylum applicants must bear the burden of proof in terms of their 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 asylum status. So um, I'm I'm seeing a few things that yeah. that give me some hope that there's a a movement forward for America at this point. Uh, it's it's not a strong movement forward, but I think it's it's there. So uh, again, my optimism is is rare, but I think at this moment, at least I have some. Bob. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, I would suggest. Would it be fair to say that actually the the uh, mainstream media now, instead of creating the narrative along with the Democrat Party, they are reacting to the narrative. Uh, that's that's that certainly is true. I think sometimes the media is left in an inescapable position where the overwhelming truth of a circumstance uh, prevents them from obfuscating that reality. And I think that, to a large extent, is exactly what's happened here. Yeah. Uh, I would add to this discussion, as long as we're, we're here, that uh, the first case of bird flu has occurred in China. That's the H10N3 bird flu. And it's the first case of bird to human transmission. Now, uh, China is downplaying it at this point, uh, and it seems to be of, of minimal concern. However, once you get that uh, that transmission from uh, from bird, or in this case, uh, chicken to to human, I think you're looking at a potential pandemic that would come close to rivaling the COVID-19 pandemic if it ever moved beyond that that, that single case, Bob. And wow. there's no reason to believe it will. But yeah. again, we have to uh, trust China on that particular point of view. You know, Andy, before uh, we end our discussion, I want to make sure that we touch on this whole notion of citizenship and responsibility. Well, I, I wrote a piece on citizenship uh, because I think it's a vastly um, underexplored area. I, I started out with uh, a story from the local newspaper in Yonkers, New York, uh, talking about a uh, graduation ceremony in which several students were asked to discuss citizenship. I was one of them. Uh, so here we have, back in 1954, we have 12-year-olds uh, discussing citizenship. And, of course, at that point, we, we discussed things uh, under the title of brotherhood. Brotherhood was a widely used concept to talk about the, uh, the equality of people and uh, how, how uh, uh, discrimination was inappropriate. So we go back to 1954, and we have the student population of America not involved with discussions of sexuality or, uh, or white racism, but talking about the basic issues of uh, America, brotherhood, uh, citizenship, 
And in this in this essay I wrote, I, I talk about the major missing component of citizenship in this country is the area of responsibility, Bob. Mm -hmm. What are the responsibilities of a citizen? Now, I know we're running a little short on time, so I'll just bottom line. I conclude this piece by saying that the major responsibility of anyone who is an American citizen is to honor and respect the Constitution of the United States. Yes. Uh, if they do not do that, I do not see how they can uh, truly be called a, a patriotic or loyal citizen of this country if they don't support the Constitution of this country. So uh, it's a rather extended piece I wrote on citizenship. It has a lot more detail in it, but uh, I think we have to get back to these type of basic discussions, citizenship, brotherhood, uh, and I think these, these might serve as a possible unifying force. I'm not op optimistic about that, uh, but I think there is a uh, at least we have to find a common ground. And I think these are areas where we might be able to find common ground, Bob. Uh, well said. I just want to point out again to our listeners that uh, I'll go to bobharden.com and, and check out Correct Me If I'm Wrong. That's the pull-down tab where you'll find many of Andy's columns, and his latest is this one about citizenship and responsibility. I encourage you to take a look at it. It's really, really well done. And by the way, Andy, I think that we're seeing evidence right now that the, the left – the progressives, the communists, the socialists have awoken a sleeping giant. And we're seeing it, for example, in school board meetings and other places where f the public is getting upset and say, hey, we're just not going to take this anymore. And, uh, well, yeah, I'm sorry. no, I just, I'm just very encouraged by that. Well, I, I am encouraged by that. Uh, you know, again, the majority does not, in many cases, uh, overwhelm the, the minority. And I think we're being dominated by minority positions. But, you know, there's a history of minority positions, you know, re retaining intact in spite of majority resistance. We saw that with the Bolsheviks. We saw that with the Nazis. So, again, I'm not dismissing your, your optimism because I am of the same mind. Uh, on the other hand, we... We can't get uh, into the position where we feel comfortable that all of this is going in the right direction and it's going to happen without our action. I think it demands that each of us individually act uh, to ensure that these individual points of dissent become more widespread and more, uh, more, more uh, common in terms of their, their, their moments, Bob. You know, I appreciate you saying that, Andy. Actually, uh, the most empowering thought that I have about this entire situation is that uh, rather than being discouraged about what's going on in the United States, just be the change you want to see. So in other words, if we all take personal responsibility right now, uh, we can make a big, big difference. Well, as with most things in life, there's nothing else that we can do that is more effect than what we do ourselves, obviously. We, we can't necessarily reach out of ourselves and affect others until we ourselves are, are active and we ourselves are doing what has to be done uh, for the freedom of America, for the, the legality of America, for the future of our children, our grandchildren, Bob. Right. And I think this is the moment. Uh, because the moments are, are slipping by us, and this moment has to be seized right now, Bob. Absolutely. Andy Joppa, again, author of Josephus of Oz. I just genuinely appreciate your very well-informed and interesting commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. Talk soon, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. We're going to do that and more right here in the, uh, on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture. He's also the author of several books, most of which I've read. Actually, uh, his latest is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thanks for having me on again. Always a pleasure, Professor. And uh, your latest column, A Pipeline for Vladimir, Pipe Dreams for Joe, uh, really important and really interesting. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, it seems like a pattern of inconsistency here, contradictions, where in the case of uh, you know the Biden administration, whatever that is and whoever that is, uh, first day in office, Joe Biden... Uh, uh, issues executive orders, one that eliminated the Keystone Pipeline that delivers a whole lot, or would have delivered a whole lot of jobs and petroleum to the United States, to our uh, own people, and then uh, also the same day he he put a, a block on permits for drilling, for, for fracking on U.S. lands and waters. So uh, this is all in the name of uh, saving the planet. And then recently he seems like it's uh, rather ironic that he then uh, reverses the Trump uh, sanctions on uh, companies and ships that are completing the Russian pipeline under the Baltic that will provide Antarctic oil from Russia to 
Europe, most particularly to Germany. And we, I think we were led to believe that this so-called climate crisis was global, that uh, eliminating a pipeline in one place uh, and building one in another place, if there is any connection to, to uh, carbon dioxide, so-called pollution, that uh, creating one pipeline for another and you're simply relocating the center of issue rather than doing anything to change it. So it seems like a huge contradiction of policies, and one might wonder why Biden would remove the sanctions that Trump had put on the shipping company and the, and the head of the company that was about to complete the, and is about to complete the, uh, the, the Nord II uh, pipeline under the Baltic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about 95% complete, as I understand it. And it'll probably be completed this summer now, where Germany will now be purchasing oil from Russia rather than uh, buying it from us. Amazing. And just uh, yesterday, the Biden administration is moving to suspend all oil and gas leases in Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which is, uh, again, we're seeing the price of oil go up. It's now, what, I think it's exceeding $70 a, uh, a barrel right now. And uh, this is going to hurt Americans in, in, in many, many different ways. Uh, mainly, it's, it's almost an added tax. So we've gone from oil independence now to being dependent on, of all things, <laughs> Iran and other places for our oil. Well, oil is being hit uh, from a lot of different directions, both internally and externally. And fossil fuels is is very significant, and the uh, Biden EPA, of course, is going to have they're going to weaponize virtually every agency in the federal government to have climate cops, whether it's in the in Treasury or in uh, every other agency that will uh, control funding in the banks and everything else, uh, which is really you know war against. Uh, against fossil fuels, and but at the same time, we're seeing it happening in the, uh, uh, internally in, in, the, in that last week, Exxon was, uh, you know, was forced to put two very anti-fossil new board members in their, in, in, in their, on their board, and this was supported by major uh, U.S. corporations. Mm which is really an attempt to kill Exxon's core business. And, and simultaneously on the same day in, uh, in the Netherlands, in the Hague Court, the court judge, circuit court judge there, ruled that uh, Shell Oil is partly responsible for climate change and that they have to dramatically cut back uh, oil production. So we're... We're seeing it both on the inside and the outside. We're seeing it in the European courts. We're seeing it in the, the stock rooms. Uh, universities in the U.S. Are, and other organizations are divesting themselves out of uh, uh, fossil fuels. And, and we're, you know, that's, that's uh, you know, we're, and we're seeing big, big investors like BlackRock, for example, and, and others, uh, State Street and others that are 
they control large amounts of stock during that cause. I say stock, but I'm talking particularly about Exxon, uh, uh, really exerting their power in the boardroom. Uh, it's uh, it's rather uh, self-destructive, you know, at, at the least. And uh, you see the now, of course, we're going to pay for this, and you know, we think, well, we uh, we damage the oil companies and so on, or mean, evil oil companies. They they of course pass the cost back to the consumers, and we look at who are the consumers that are most impacted by this, and and, uh, and of course it's those that depend on you know low cost commodities that those. Those, those transportation industries, of course, devastated by this, and uh, they, have, they pay more for transportation as, as we do at the pumps. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it hurts those who really can least afford it, and those who we depend on most directly for our all of our commodities and services. Yeah. You know, Professor, I think about the Cl- uh, Paris Climate Accord, and the entire premise of this entire movement towards eliminating fossil fuels has to do with the uh, trace gas of carbon dioxide in our environment. Uh, carbon dioxide is plant food. Is, this seems insane, and yet it's going to drive our costs up, and it's not, and of course, the as you put it, the windmills and sunbeams can't possibly uh, reproduce and, and create for us what we have with uh, fossil fuels. Yeah, I've written a couple of books about this. I, I started writing about about more than a dozen years ago, and the reason I did it was not because I I care about the weather and that very much, and you know, I'm not terribly alarmed about it. But it was I began being interested around the time that Al Gore did his his inconvenient book and his inconvenient movie, and and began to look at the history of climate and so on, and, and science of climate, and uh, realized that there's a lot of agendas behind this, and. We tend to forget about Climate Gate, which was a totally exposure of all these corrupt emails that showed they were cooking the books and and controlling what what articles got uh, published. To a large extent, they're still doing that. And all of the disingenuous stuff that was going on, and uh, then you you, you wonder about the agendas, and, and then you kind of fast forward to reality, if you can, and say, well, you know, we get about... The world gets about three percent or less of our energy from wind and solar, and that that applies to the U.S. Solar is less than one percent, hmm. and somehow we're going to transition. They say to from this, you know, three percent to the replace the eighty percent we get from from hydrocarbons, and we're going to do it in a few years. And we're going to, although it also admittedly, the effects on climate won't even be measurable. Yeah. But meanwhile. China and Russia, of course, get, you know, China gets a pass to continue building the equivalent of one major coal plant per year, and they're also financing other countries to to do the same, and we have, uh, and we're going to push this electric uh, society with windmills and sunbeams and batteries uh, and electric plug-in cars that require more electricity, and and they say, well, where does where do the materials for that, you know, f- for all that industry come from? Where do these rare earths come from? 
Well, eighty percent comes from China. Yeah, and and uh, and we're putting ourselves not only in a, a terrible terrible straits in terms of our lack of you know, energy independence and reliable energy, but we're putting ourselves really at the mercy of of organization, you know, uh, oligarchs and companies, countries like Russia and China, where again the pipeline under the under the Baltic is is an example of Russia and mm. of course China owns and controls the rare earth materials for the batteries and for the electric vehicles and so on and we have we have now Taiwan which is at risk from China China big time that produces about 80 to 90 percent of the advanced semiconductor yeah. uh, materials that that the cars that the cars need so you know, putting yourself in a terrible bind. It, indeed. In fact, I'm going to refer your scared witless, the prophets and prophets of climate doom. A great read if you really want to understand the religion and all the issues that go along with uh, this climate change political and uh, movement. Professor, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Bob, I always enjoy it as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow we got great guests lined up as well. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.